From terrorist attacks at the World Trade Center to gunfights, he gives an insight into policing that few ever see. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. If you enjoy the Law Enforcement Today podcast, do me a big favor. Tell a friend. And if you're able, if you've got a few moments, leave an honest review and rating. But most importantly, tell a friend or two or three. If you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. Calling us from New Jersey, we have retired NYPD Detective Phil Grimaldi joining us on the Law Enforcement Show, calling us from New Jersey. Phil, thanks so much for being guest. Very much appreciated. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. You gave him referred via Bill Cannon and his podcast, Off the Cuff. I've had Phil on a show, great guy, and providing great insight into what policing is all about. And a lot of the media doesn't really portray that. And that's one of the main reasons we had the Law Enforcement Today show. I always say this for far too long. We've relied on others to tell our stories, and they've done a horrible job. And now it's so biased, it's not even closely resembling the truth. Phil, we're going to talk about your career. We're going to talk about... 9-11, the attack of the World Trade Center, you worked there. You're suffering some of the health issues as a result of that. And you've also gone through another aspect of law enforcement that is categorized in a very malicious manner. That's officer-involved shootings, am I correct? Yes, I've, uh, I've been involved in uh, two uh, police officer-involved shootings where I exchanged gunfire with perpetrators on uh, two separate occasions. The reason I say that that's misconstrued and it's done in a malicious manner two things happen in the news media if, if an officer's been involved in more than one officer involved shooting one gunfight whatever term technology you want to use uh they make it sound like they have a propensity towards violence and the other one is always construed as biased or systemic racism or somehow that's got something to do with it and i just want to let people know i was in four officer involved shootings in 10 years the first two I never fired a shot back because I just knew instinctively that the threat was over. The second two were long, drawn-out, protracted affairs, and they were, thank goodness, everybody lived. But there's a lot of misconceptions about what happens that most people, if you listen to the news, you're not getting the straight scoop. Am I wrong? 100% correct. Um, The first shooting that I was involved in in uh, August of 1982, I was fresh out of the police academy, the media reported uh, facts that were just 100% inaccurate. Uh, they got maybe a little bit of the story correct. I'd say about 20%. So uh, right from the jump, uh, I had a, uh, a fresh insight into uh, how the media portrays things inaccurately. And I think it's gotten much, much worse today. I mean, 
uh, probably overall back those days, they could be between 50 and 75% accurate. Uh, and maybe as time went on, they would get a little bit more accurate. But today, it seems like they're in the 20% category with uh, accuracy on facts. Yeah, one of the things I always take exception to is the news media, and we'll use the newspaper as an example. They'll lead with the headline of cop shoots man, cop shoots uh, suspect, whatever they, and that's, they, they start with the end first. They don't go yeah. into the 50 different decisions that perpetrator made that could have prevented this. The 50 things they did that could have stopped it from happening. And usually when they do incorporate that, it's buried at the bottom of the, the article and no one sees it because all they read is the headline and maybe the first two paragraphs. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more on that. And it's just uh, what's going on in, in today's world in the last few years with the recent police-involved shootings is a saying that I've seen on the Internet, and I, I've uh, spoke it with many law enforcement officers. If they would have complied, they wouldn't have died, or something to that effect. If you comply, you don't die. I mean, that's the bottom line here. When you're involved in a interaction with a police officer, if you comply chances are you're not going to die. Yeah, most people don't. I, most, I'll be honest with you, Phil. People love to make it sound like police work is blood and guts and gunfights and all adrenaline all the time. I describe it as 95% sheer boredom, monotonous call after monotonous call, and then you have five you know, minutes of heart-pounding adrenaline, life and death, and you're back down to monotonous boredom again. Yeah, what you just described is... Uh, a traumatic experience that leads to post-traumatic stress. Oh, yeah, and it happens over and over. It's like, what's the old directions on shampoo, rinse, lather, repeat? It is the same yeah. cycle over and over and over again, and sometimes multiple times a shift. Yes, absolutely. And I take great exception with the way that uh, police officers are portrayed in the media. Like, they get up in the morning when they're putting on their gun belt and their bulletproof vest, their uh, mission for the day is to go out and kill someone, which is 100% not true, obviously. The uh, situations that they're placed in uh, wind up turning into violence, and obviously the training kicks in, your instincts kick in, and sometimes, uh, you know, the decisions that are made could be scrutinized. A decision that's made in two or three seconds could be scrutinized over uh hours and days and months you know absolutely and by lawyers by a police admin by judges it, every it's a lot of monday morning quarterbacking going on and i'm not complaining you know i want our police held to a high standard every cop i know wants everybody to do the best job possible doesn't mean you have to be superman doesn't mean you have to be like a world-class crime fighter it just means show up do your job and don't be corrupt that's all we ever wanted yes and and i think that you know, if you take the job as a law enforcement officer like I did, I wanted to be a, a police officer from when I was young, and I took it very seriously. I didn't take it for the paycheck. There was always, you know, in my experience in the, in the NYPD, I always said there was four categories of cops. There was the super cop that was just 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Everything was about law enforcement. There was the active guy, which I placed myself in that category. I was an active police officer. There was the cop that did what he had to do to get by, and then there was the complete and total do-nothings, which in my day, there was very few of those, you know? Yeah, we had those too. And I rotated between the uh, <laughs> the active guy, and I, I would say to myself, look, tonight I'm not doing anything. 
It's going to be a quiet night. I don't care what happens. I'm getting off on time. And guess what? It would always get ruined because I'd see something. I'd do something. And that's when the really, really bad calls would happen. Yeah, that, that's when things would seem to jump off when you had plans or something like that. But, I mean, in my, my first 10 years on the police force, I did patrol. I did conditions, anti-crime, which is a plain clothes. And then I, did, I worked in the robbery squad. And I never shied away from an arrest, even when I had plans. I, I mean, I tried my best to do what came in front of me. You know, if I had a case, and unfortunately, if I had to make a collar, I had to make a collar. And, you know, whatever it was that I had planned would just have to wait, you know. You're right. And so much of the job really isn't about arresting people. Another big misconception that we have is that so much of the job is about arresting people and giving tickets and all that stuff. And the truth was the vast majority of the job was handling quality of life situations and trying your best to resolve and solve crimes for calls for service. And that's what we did. This is the Law Enforcement Show. We're talking Phil Grimaldi. He is retired NYPD. When we return, we're going to talk about the inside, the reality of being in gunfights or officer-involved shootings and also the terrorist attack at the World Trade Center. If you haven't done so already, please download our app. It's 100% free. we got versions for your Android and iPhone devices. You can download them today at our website, which is letradioshow.com. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. One of the most frequent questions we see is, where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today podcast network, go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. This is Law Enforcement Today show. We are back with Phil Grimaldi, retired NYPD detective. You started, I think you said, in 1982. Is that correct? Yes. I went through the police academy in 1982, and I just want to make one quick point about what you said in our previous segment. My first day in the police academy, one of the first things they said was, uh, you know, is police work uh, routine and boring, or is it uh, constantly exciting and adrenaline flowing? And they made us aware right away that 95% of the time it's routine and boring, taking police reports, following up on crime like you stated earlier, but uh, that 5% is, uh, I guess, what we're going to talk about now. It is, and and you got exposed to it really quickly out of the, the academy. You were how long at the academy before you had your first life-and-death gunfight? It was about three or four weeks out of the police academy, and uh, I had been exposed to some... Uh, you know, some uh, physical altercations, uh, making arrests and stuff right away, too, within the first couple of weeks. But uh, this was uh, a summer night in Coney Island. I was working out of Coney Island, and uh, we would get off at 4.30 in the morning. And uh, we would park our cars down the block from the precinct in the aquarium parking lot, the uh, Coney Island Aquarium. Uh, we were outside the aquarium parking lot when these two individuals approached, and uh, rather quickly things turned, uh, turned pretty violent. 
Um, their intent was to rob us, but uh, they only saw three or four of us on the sidewalk. Uh, several of the other uh, people at Woodhurst, there was actually 11 people, uh, about 11 of us, uh, male and female officers, and uh, some of them were sitting on the steps leading up to the boardwalk. So uh, when they initially walked up, their intent was to rob us. They only saw two or three of us on the sidewalk. And when they went past, uh, they exchanged some words, and the next thing you know, they uh, whipped out guns. Actually, one, the first guy pulled out a gun and handed it to the second guy, and then the, uh, the, the first guy pulled out his second gun. And he, uh, by that time, I had dove behind a car. Uh, my, my car was parked right there. And I uh, leaned on the trunk of the car, aiming at him, never thinking he was going to start firing. And the guy just opened up, started firing shots. One of the shots uh, struck a light pole that was right behind me. Um, I returned fire. Three of the other officers returned fire. And then there was just a big cloud of smoke in front of me, and they were running away. And then I saw uh, the individual running, and I fired one more shot, and that was the shot that hit him. Um, he went down about a block away. He tried to hide in some bushes, and we, uh, we, uh, we captured him. And the second guy was caught by some patrolmen uh, that uh, responded to the 911 calls. How long a period of time did this take? Uh, the whole thing took, uh, I guess, the initial shooting was just a few seconds. By the time we caught up to him, maybe 15, 20 seconds, uh, like I said, about a block away, maybe 30 seconds. And, uh, you know, uh, I always say that my, you know, I grew up in New York City. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, just outside of Carney Island. So I had my, my street smarts. I had whatever education I got in school. And then I had my police academy education. And those three things really... Because when I, I saw these individuals from across the street, and when I saw them approaching, I had my, because I was off duty, you know, we had just gotten off duty. I had my gun on my ankle. I took it out, and I put it in my pocket because there was no one on the street at 430 in the morning. And these guys are just walking, and all of a sudden they decided to cross, walk right towards us. And I alerted the other two, three officers that I was uh, talking with. So I, my instincts kicked in right from that point. And then uh, as I drew down on the guy, you know, I, I had my gun on him, and, you know, he was only maybe 15 feet away, 20 feet away. Uh, I never thought that he was going to open up. And I was just assuming that the other officers were doing the same. But there was only the three who were standing on the sidewalk who uh, were with me that actually saw that the, what was going down. And then uh, I guess, you know, there's that hesitation, that, that second or two. And the guy just started firing. And then, you know, I returned fire. I fired three shots back. And uh, the other guys fired a, a, a total of maybe another 11 shots. And then I fired one more as they were uh, as they were running across the street, but it uh, it, it all happened very quickly, and I was uh, very uh, thankful that my instincts kicked in, and I was I, I immediately you know I had my gun ready, uh, I took cover when I saw that the guy was pulling a firearm, and uh, I responded back once they started shooting. You know, two things that come to my mind right away from being in in similar is. It happens so fast, you don't have time to think. You just kind of react. It's not a lot of thinking that goes into this. And the other one is, after it's over, it's like, I can't believe this person just tried to kill me. Well, I'll agree with you 100% on that, and I'll uh, back up what you said with a fact. When I when things calmed down and, you know, the, uh, the sergeant uh, came on the scene, supervisors came on the scene, and they said, how many shots did you fire? And I said, two. And when I looked in my gun, I had four spent shells. Uh, I fired three in the first volley, and I thought I only fired once. 
And the second time I fired, you know, I, I was only carrying a five-shot gun, so you try to, uh, you know, you want to you make your rounds count, obviously. Um, so I thought I only fired one, and I fired three. And then the second uh, volley, I fired one. So, like you said, my instincts took over. Uh, I, I didn't really have time to think. You know, it all it happens in a split second. And thank God my... Uh, my police training and my instincts, uh, I, I came out of it, you know, I came out of it okay. And I understand it so well. A lot of people don't. And they'll say, well, there's a discrepancy. He said two, and there's actually three. Is he lying? Is there a cover-up? Is there a conspiracy? And from that comes all kinds of nonsense. The truth is, I mean, I remember clearly, it's almost the time slowed down, but sounds other things people yelling in the background i didn't really hear and i couldn't tell you how many shots i fired i didn't know until i did a check afterwards exactly and and i think what was going through my mind at that specific moment was i wanted him to stop shooting at me i mean i really you know once he started to shoot i was more ducking than i was aiming you know and i just wanted him to stop shooting at me so that's where i think i you know, I fired off the three rounds, and again, like you said, you know, the, you're, you're so focused on this guy's trying to kill me, and I have to try and stop it, that, you know, you're not counting rounds, so to speak, you know? And, uh, I, I mean, there's probably been many, many shootings where uh, the officer runs out of rounds and he thinks his gun is malfunctioning, you know, but you're firing them off in such a, uh, you know, you want that shooting to stop, you want that threat to stop, so... That's exactly right, and I know every cop I know, including myself, has those nightmares about the gun not working, about the gun misfiring, or the bullet dribbles out of the end. You don't know. The only time I recounted rounds was when at the range qualifying, because they'd say things like a three on the whistle, and you'd have to count how many rounds you fired. When it's actual life and death situation, and it's totally different, when you're shooting at a paper target, and it's not shooting back at you, and your life's not in danger, and someone else's life is not in danger. It is totally different. Then you add in things like movement, adrenaline, increased heart rate. All those things have an impact on how prolonged these events can be, how many shots are fired, how accurate the shots are, all those things. We're talking with Phil Grimaldi, retired NYPD. We're going to talk more about officer involved shootings he's involved in, and we're going to talk about 9-11, the attack of the World Trade Center, and the after effects. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. This is Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, we love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Return a conversation with Phil Grimaldi, retired NYPD detective on the Law Enforcement Today show. And for winter break, Phil was talking about his first officer-involved shooting. And that was just three weeks out of the police academy. And everybody was 
it was like a robbery. They didn't realize they were police or they didn't realize how many, but it turned into a gunfight and one of the suspects was apprehended by patrol and the other one you guys caught, he'd been shot. Did he survive? Yes, he was shot in the side as the bullet exited from his lower abdomen. And, uh, you know, uh, when we got to him, he was hold- He was laying on his belly. He was holding his, uh, his stomach with both hands, and we didn't know if he had still been armed. He had discarded the gun, we later found out. But, you know, trying to get him to, uh, you know, uh, show us your hands, show us your hands, and he's holding his, his stomach, you know, because he had been, uh, you know, shot and he had that wound. So that was a little bit hairy right there until we got him handcuffed, you know. I thank God that the people I was involved in these shootings, they all survived. I survived. Not, not unscathed. We all have injuries. But we, we're alive and here to talk about it. So I'm glad you and he and everybody survived that night. Before we get into talking about the after effects, there was another one further down in your career. How much longer was that? That was uh, October 2nd, 1986. I was in plain clothes, uh, and I was working in an anti-crime team with uh, my partner and, uh, and another officer, a female officer. There were three of us in the car, and there had been this uh, robbery call that come over, and uh, they put a description of two perpetrators over, and there was a, uh, a short car chase, and it was a little bit of a rainy night. I'll never forget it was a Sunday night, and the patrol supervisor called off the pursuit. But we had gotten into the area where the car had last been seen, and I was driving east on, on, a, on a particular street on Cotillia Road in Brooklyn, and uh, the subject vehicle uh, was tri- traveling west, and they, they saw that, you know, I mean, even though we had an unmarked car, it was obvious that we were police to the bad guys, and he tried to crash into us, so I swerved out of the way. He, he took off, I whipped the U-turn, and then we, uh, we radioed that the, uh, the guy had tried to crash into us and that we were going to continue the pursuit, which we did. Uh, about, about a block or two later, he spun out, and when he spun out, he wound up on the sidewalk. So now I got behind him, but I didn't get directly behind him because I knew he was going to try and reverse, and I didn't want him to crash into me. Right. Well, because it had been raining, his wheels started to spin, and he just, all of a sudden, the wheels caught, and he was like, just about parallel right next to us. Uh, the driver opened the door. He fired a shot, which uh, went through the window the, the, where my partner was sitting. My partner ducked. And the female police officer who was in the back, she had opened the back door to get out because, uh, you know, she, she thought they were going to, you know, exit the vehicle and try and run on foot. But the bullet pat- broke the window and uh, went out the back door. It didn't hit her, thank God. But in that second I, I you know like they say everything stops everything slows down right and I, I froze and I said I'm in hell I got to get out of hell I felt like being in that car you know I, these, the, the original description came over that they were armed with automatics uh, so I said you know he fired one they blew out the window they were going to open up on us so I threw the car into park I exited the car and I got around to the back of course, the car was, was not exactly next to us. It was a little bit on an angle. I, I started to aim at the driver's side of the rear window. I was going to shoot to, dis, you know, to, to, to uh, incapacitate the vehicle. I figured if I shot the driver that, you know, the vehicle would stop and then we'd be able to try and apprehend him. So I fired a shot, and it was the guy had uh, very heavily tinted windows. So a small circle blew out of the back window. And I saw the passenger, I had hit him because the car was on an angle. Well, at that point, the car took off down the block. We were trying to 
get ourselves, you know, we had radio that uh, we, you know, we were in pursuit of these guys before the shooting started. So a radio car pulled up and I said, get them, get them. You know, they just shot at us and I wanted to see if my partner had been hit, you know. So the car continued down the block. The driver actually jumped out of the car while it was moving, ran into the backyards. He wound up getting away. And then the passenger who was shot was trying to steer the car from the passenger seat. It made it to the next quarter. It went up on a lawn and it crashed. And actually an off-duty guy, a rookie police officer who was going through the police academy, who was getting off-duty, was walking from the bus. He actually, you know, went over to the car. They had discarded the, the they had discarded the guns, and uh, he actually helped apprehend the, uh, the perpetrator. So now at that point, you know, my partner's covered in glass. He is shot. I don't know. We were checking ourselves out. We were checking the third officer that, that was with us. And uh, then the, uh, the next radio car that pulled up just threw us in the car, notified the hospital, took us right to the hospital. And, uh, you know, it was raining a little bit. So now I'm in the back of the car, and uh, my partner, uh, you're right. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Now my back was hurting me because I twisted when I got out of the car so quickly. Right. And I took my right hand and I put it on my back and I felt wet and I, it was, it was raining, but I thought it was blood. And I saw, I, I think I'm shot. You know, I turned and my, my partner actually laughed. He was like, no, no, he goes, you're, you're wet. It was raining. And you're not, you're not bleeding. You're not bleeding. But when we got to the hospital, they just threw us on gurneys. They brought us into the emergency and ripped all our clothes off and, you know, checked us. We were okay. And then, uh, then they brought the bad guy in who was shot. The funny thing about this, and I don't say funny as in ha-ha funny, I'm saying funny as in odd. Ironic, there are yes. many times that I've had to frisk myself afterwards and other cops I've worked with, are you okay, am I okay? You have really no idea. I've heard people say they were shot and they didn't know, they, they felt being hit, but they weren't, the adrenaline was so high, they didn't feel it to afterwards. So when you start saying you felt wet, you're like, is it blood, am I bleeding, am I hurt, am I down, what's going on? That part, I was like, oh, my goodness, that's me. I remember those days. That's exactly what it was because we're on our way to the hospital now. You know, this thing all just happened. We didn't know. You know, my, my, I was asking my partner, are you hit? Are you hit? And he was in shock. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know. And they just threw us in the car like, you know, covered in, he was covered in glass. And the sound, be, besides the gunshot, the sound of that window breaking from inside the car. And I left this out. My partner actually returned fire from inside the car. He fired right back as I was getting out. So those two explosions, they were like, you know, just so loud. And, and, and you know, your ears are ringing, and, and it's all happening so quick. I mean, these, these things happen in, in, you know, two or three seconds. And uh, just very, uh, you know, as I'm thinking about it now, I'm getting, my stomach is getting a little nervous. I hear you. I'm, I hear you, and I can understand. I remember for years falling asleep at night, and there's that, that point where you are not in deep sleep yet and we ha sometimes have those dreams that you're falling and all of a sudden I hear really loud gunshot right next to my ear and almost like a jolt of electricity through my body and I boom, right out of bed, right out and ready to go. And that's exactly what I thought of when you talked about how loud it was. Yes. The, the sound, I, I actually have hearing loss in my right ear more than I have in my left ear because the the window blew out on my right side, and my partner returned fire from my right side. So I, uh, my hearing loss is a little worse on the right side. Did everybody survive that? Yes, everyone survived that. And then the ironic thing about that was two years later, the, perp uh, the, the driver had gotten away. And, uh, you know, the detectives took a case on it, and they, you know, they never, they put a wanted card on him. They never found him. Two years later, I'm sitting in the office. I was now in the robbery unit. I was working with the detective squad. 
handling robbery cases. And it was a Saturday night. America's Most Wanted is on. And they're talking about these different cases. And they said the next case we're going to feature is about a Jamaican drug gang that uh, uh, killed six people. And one of the perpetrators got away. And then we're, we're going to feature him. And they throw his picture up. This guy looks familiar, you know. And they put up four or five aliases. So it just so happened the detective who caught the case was working in the squad next, you know, in this, we were in the same office, but it was two separate offices. And I called him. I said, Bobby, uh, could you get the case out? I said, I think the perp is going to be on, uh, uh, you know, on America's Most Wanted, the perp for my shooting. So he pulls it out, and sure enough, one of the aliases. So as it turned out, he had left New York. He had gone to Baltimore, Maryland. I probably met the guy. <laughs> you, you, may, you may have arrested him. I but, specialized uh, in Jamaican drug gangs in northwest Baltimore. We're talking with Phil Grimaldi. He's retired NYPD. When we return, we'll wrap up this part of the conversation and go into the terrorist attack at the World Trade Center. Catch all the episodes of Law Enforcement Today show as a podcast for free. Do a Google search for Law Enforcement Today podcast or just go to letradioshow.com. Click the Be Heard tab and you'll find us right there. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Remember in the beginning? When you first started to build a life for you and your family, you never imagined it would come to this. Instead of living your dreams, you're living with debt. In fact, it's smothering you. Now there's a way you can take back control with one simple call. If you owe $10,000 or more in credit card debt, you qualify to receive a free, no-obligation consultation on how to get rid of that debt for good. Call the Debt Helpline now. We work on your behalf to reduce your debt. We specialize in credit cards, retail store cards, and medical bills. One simple call is all it takes to get the ball rolling to a debt-free life. Stop living with debt and start living your dreams. Call the Debt Helpline now. 800-709-4389. 800 That's 800-709-4389. conversation with Phil Grimaldi, retired NYPD, on the Law Enforcement Today show. Phil and I share some similarities. My police career was mostly in Northwest District of Baltimore, and I became specialized because of their activity in Jamaican drug gangs in the area, and they were very violent, and one of his shootings involved a Jamaican drug gang, and we're not going to go into names because the truth is... Phil and I talked about this. I don't want to remember the names. I don't want to remember these guys at all. I'd rather remember the good folks because there's there's lots of them, police and otherwise. So, Phil, I'm glad everybody survived. I'm so glad you're here to tell the story about this. And so much of what you went through really contradicts what the media puts out there. These things happen so fast. They happen in an unexpected manner. And it's almost as if when you're telling a story, it's like, and this happened, and then this happened. And the entire time I'm telling a story, I go, this sounds incredible, and I don't believe it myself, but I was there. Right, yeah, it, it's, it's really crazy. And you were talking about the, the perpetrators' names. I tend to remember the victims' names, you know, I yeah. mean, uh, especially when I handle homicides and stuff like that. But, yeah, that, that shooting happened in such a uh, quick manner. And, and, again, you know, the training... Uh, you know, uh, I was aiming at the driver to try and in- incapacitate the car. And, uh, you know, I only had, I had a six-shot revolver. I knew they were armed automatics. That's why I only fired once. I wanted to 
you know, I wanted to really count my rounds and make sure that I wasn't going to run out of bullets if these guys bailed out of the car opening up on us, you know. Yeah. And then we're going to go to the biggie. And, and these are all big events. Uh, I'm not downplaying those, but when you consider the actions and the devastation of the terror attack at the World Trade Center and other locations on September 11th, 2001, you know, th- these other things kind of pale comparison. Um, and it really is, it's like comparing apples and oranges. They're all horrible, but I personally cannot understand or comprehend what you all went through that day and went through for months afterwards and then even what you're going through now. Yes, absolutely. Um, all of the things that I was through as a police officer before 9-11, when 9-11 occurred, I had about 20 years on the job. And, um, you know, I was in those two shootouts. I had been exposed to many, 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 many traumatic events. And I always seemed to be able to cope with it. However, on 9-11, the things that I saw, um, just right from the jump, that I, I, had, uh, I was home when it happened. And I responded there later in the day, actually after the two towers had collapsed. And when I came through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, because I was stationed in Brooklyn, I lived in Staten Island at the time, but I had gone to my office at the Army Tunnel. I was in the intelligence division of the NYPD on 9-11. So we had an office in the Brooklyn Army Terminal. So I went there, we had gotten cars, and we convoyed into uh, Manhattan. And halfway through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, the lights went out. And as we went a little further, we started to see this white powder. Now, we knew that there was the collapse. We didn't know the the amount of devastation that we were going to see when we got to that tunnel. But I was a little concerned about the lights being out. And and I asked my, I was with my sergeant and several other people in the car. Uh, We had a van, actually. um, And I said, you know, the lights are out. What do you think? He's like, other people made it through. Keep going. And we we continued on. We started to see the white powder, which looked like snow. And I will never forget, when I got out of the tunnel, there was a uniformed police officer, and I looked him right in the eye, and he looked at me, and he had such a distant, empty look on his face. I will never forget that. And then through the buildings, right right outside the Battery Tunnel, through the buildings, you could see the remnants of the World Trade Center. And it just was surreal. My brain didn't want to process what I was looking at. I had been by the World Trade Center just a few days before on Friday. It was Tuesday when it, when it uh, uh, occurred on 9-11. I was by there on Friday looking up at these tremendous 110-story uh, buildings. And my brain, for whatever reason, I just didn't want to process what I was seeing, you know. And then uh, we spent most of the day down there. And then I spent about seven weeks there uh, until I was sent back to my office we were assigned leads. Uh, we were working hand-in-hand with the FBI. Uh, any leads that came in, they would send uh, NYPD detectives along with FBI agents to follow up on these leads. And, uh, you know, but on, in between the leads, we'd be down there, and we were actually uh, given pictures of the black boxes, and uh, we were told, obviously, to look for them. And if anybody find them, they would direct to us, and we would bring them to a location, you know, to be uh, safeguarded. But obviously, there were no black boxes were covered. They were probably disintegrated in the, uh, you know, the planes impacting the two buildings. I went to New York several years after this, and I had to go there for a business convention of some sort. And we went by the site, and by then it was just big holes in the ground construction, and they had NYPD there. I went up to talk to them, and I wanted to say, "Hey, I'm retired Baltimore police sergeant," and. Uh, you know, my thoughts are with you guys because I, I, I cannot 
comprehend in my head what it's like to go through that. And I can't comprehend the amount of people that were lost in one incident. And I went to talk to them, and I knew it was going to be a civil conversation. And as soon as I opened my mouth, it was like being in the gas chamber in the police academy. I just started bawling. I couldn't talk. And it just, it was like a sucker punch in the gut. I can't understand what happened that day. I can't understand the amount of people that lost loved ones. And I'll be honest with you, Phil, I can't understand people like you that went there and I know how cops are. I know we want to help. I know we want to find people. We want to rescue people. We want to do the right thing. But that wasn't in the cards for you guys. No, it absolutely wasn't. And uh, there was another thing I wanted to touch on. When we got there, we wound up, uh, we were south of the collapse. We came out of the battery tunnel. We got as far as we could along the west side to get to the to the collapse location, uh, to ground zero. And then uh, our bosses, they were worried about the stability of this big pile of debris that they wanted us out of there. So they made us, we went back around through the uh, FDR drive, and we came north of it by about three blocks. And when we got to that location, we had gotten the car parked, we started to walk up, and we could see the tower, what was left of the towers and, you know, with the burning debris. And I walked up to a female detective from my office. I said, what's going on? And she's like, uh, we're waiting for number seven to collapse, seven world trade. And I looked at her like, what is she talking about? You know, the collapse already happened. I turned to my partner. I said, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Just as I said that, building seven collapsed right in front of us. The cloud of smoke came towards us, the cloud, the, the giant dust cloud. We ran, and as we were running, I kept looking back, and it was just so incredibly unbelievable. The cloud was just billowing, billowing. It was coming towards us, and then it just stopped, and it just was billowing. It, it, was, it was almost like it, it just stopped. It was amazing. And I, 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 you know, I told my partner, I said, wait, wait, wait. And we were about a, a half a block, a block from it. I said, no, it's not coming this way. It's not coming this way. I think we were on Chambers Street. It was just unbelievable to watch. Now, this was like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You know, the, the attack happened uh, 8.45 in the morning. So this was many hours later. Apparently, there was these large diesel tanks in the building. In number seven, there was the Office of Emergency Management, and they had uh, generators in case there was a power outage, and they had uh, large diesel tanks in the basement. And this is what ignited uh, uh, eventually after the uh, collapse of the Twin Towers and it caused the building to collapse. And so many people that worked there, both in fire department, police department, as a matter of fact, I think more people died of of 9-11 related issues and cancers than were killed that day. How has your health been? Well, uh, right from the beginning, I lost my voice within a couple of weeks after 9-11. I had a very groggy voice, like I had a bad cold, and I ignored it, I ignored it. And then after about months i had gone to the doctor and he gave me steroids it went away and then it came back a second time when it came back the second time uh was in about a year i had gone to a ear nose and throat specialist they found a polyp on my vocal cord they gave me uh steroids again different medications i started on a sinus inhaler which is a steroid which i've been on till this day and the polyp eventually turned to scar tissue, and they wanted to watch it to see if it would turn to cancer. But as the years went on, a lot of different people were getting sick, and they started to send me some literature to be uh, part of the health program. And I just felt like, you know, no, that's the guys with cancer and stuff like that. Well, about 2007, I ran into a, a lieutenant that retired, a friend of mine, and he said to me, uh, 
you know, he goes, how you doing? I said, good, good. How are you? Well, you know, I had cancer, this and that. He had blood cancer, but he, through treatment, he was okay. And he goes, how you doing? And I said, no, I'm okay. He goes, no. He goes, you don't sound right. You're not breathing right. You don't sound right. He goes, did you get the thing for the screening? You got to do it. And I said, no. I said, listen, that's for guys like you. You had cancer. I said, I'm fine. I'm fine. He said, no, Phil. And he insisted, you have to go for the screening. By the way, that screening saved my life because when I went for it, it, uh, it was the 9-11 medical monitoring program. I went to, uh, uh, in the Rutgers University over here in New Jersey, they had uh, one of the sites, and there was a doctor by the name of Dr. Udison who was a professor that was running the site, and she examined me personally. I was there for a whole day. They diagnosed me with uh, chronic sinusitis, acid reflux, asthma. My breathing was diminished by like 23% at that time, PTS, sleep apnea, all the same issues that all of the first responders that were down there have, I had most of them. There's a charity you're actually involved in. What is that? The uh, Detectives Endowment Association, which is the union for detectives, there's a charity they call it the Widows and Children's Fund, the Widows and Orphans Fund. Um, they uh, get money, and if there's a police officer that dies in the line of duty, or if there is a serious injury, or any real officer that uh, is in need, or his family's in need, they, uh, they help out but uh, medical bills, you know, funding if they need a, a ramp or something like that on their house because they're wheelchair bound. So it's the DEA Widows and Children's Fund. And Phil, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Thanks for your service. And uh, it's all very much appreciated. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.